Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Happy Friday, listeners. It's about 8.30 on Friday, September 17th. Bill is out this week. I'm Ginger Gibson, the Deputy Washington Editor for NBC News Digital, and we're still gathering the roundtable to talk about the week in Washington and politics. California Governor Gavin Newsom survived the recall. Now, what can Democrats learn from his big win to help them in 2022? Three centrist Democrats vote to block a prescription drug price proposal, which could signal the first undoing of President Biden's $3.5 trillion spending bill. Is it coming off the rails? General Milley is defending his decision to promise China he wouldn't let Trump surprise them with a strike. Trump says that was treason. Why are the Democrats playing chicken with the debt ceiling? And a pro-insurrectionist rally is scheduled for D.C. this week, but Republican leaders are steering clear. Joining me this week to work this all out are Jim Oliphant, national politics correspondent for Reuters. Hi, Jim. Hello, Ginger. Great to be here. Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News. Hey, Alex. Hey, Ginger. Thanks for having me. And S.V. Date, senior White House correspondent for HuffPost. Hi, S.V. Good morning, Ginger. Let's jump right in and start with California. As expected, Governor Newsom survived the recall effort handedly. Alex, you've been covering this race. Uh, What was your big takeaway about what Dems should be learning uh, from the results we saw much faster than we expected on Tuesday night? Right. I mean, you know, to to start off, we should say a Democrat winning in California, perhaps not too surprising. And California is obviously bluer than the country. But uh, this race did look close over the summer and uh, it was called much sooner. The, The margin was much bigger. So I do think Gavin Newsom has some legs to stand on when he is offering lessons to the National Party. And he is. Uh, His big message for Joe Biden and for other Democrats is to go all in on COVID, um, specifically, you know, vaccine and mask mandates. He really made that the closing message of his campaign. He warned in ads in speeches and rallies that uh, if Republicans won, if Larry Elder won, they would undo all of that. They would make your kids exposed to COVID in schools. And the exit polls uh, from NBC News showed that that was a good bet. The the public really sided with him in uh, California, and it really seems to have galvanized Democratic turnout, which was his big challenge and is going to be the big challenge or one of the big challenge for Democrats in 2022. So uh, you're seeing Terry McAuliffe in Virginia doing that as well. And uh, ahead of you know the the governor's race there in November, and now Newsom is you know publicly and his and his lieutenants are publicly calling on Biden to get more aggressive with vaccine mandates. They say it's both good policy and good politics. Biden went out to California to campaign with Newsom. We have a little bit of sound, and what uh, I, I'm curious we're going to see you know, is a preview of what he's going to sound like uh, when he hits the trail next year. Let's listen. I'm going to make this as simple as I can. You either keep Gavin Newsom as your governor 
or you'll get Donald Trump. Republican governor blocking progress on COVID-19, who is also anti-woman, anti-worker, climate denier, who doesn't believe in choice. Jim, I'm curious, can Democrats run against Trump for another election? Is that a, a, a route that's even feasible for them? Well, uh, Ginger, it's not so much running against Trump, although he's going to remain uh, probably a pretty viable weapon uh, for them. But it's the idea of what uh, Gavin Newsom called Trumpism. And, and that is, you know, the party has sort of taken the image of Trump on a host of issues. And one thing that really helped Newsom out here is the fact that, you know, we all the media attention given to things like, uh, you know, the Texas uh, abortion bill and the uh, and the voting uh, access bill. And, 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 and so the idea now is that, um, you know, Republicans have an amazing ability sometimes to uh, pick exactly the wrong candidate. And they did with Larry Elder uh, in the recall election. And it's a reminder that you still need good candidates. You can have all the advantages you want. We all know the Republicans have a great deal of advantage next year from redistricting on down. But if you don't have good candidates and if you can have candidates that can be easily caricatured like Elder and, and turned into sort of a facsimile uh, of Donald Trump, uh, that can be a, a real a disadvantage for the GOP. We saw on Thursday night Representative Anthony Gonzalez, who voted uh, to impeach the president earlier this year, announced he was not going to be running for re-election. Uh, Trish, let me ask you, do you see this as um, sort of a, um, a, a false uh, enthusiasm or positive for Democrats? Are, are they getting a little too optimistic when they see things like California win, when they're likely to win in New Jersey, another pretty blue state next year, uh, a Democrat leading in Virginia? Well, they, they, they ought not be optimistic because that's the way midterms usually work out is, is against the party in the White House. But, you know, and, and, and for that reason, I'm not sure we can take away that much from California. Um, you know, it is ridiculously easy to get a recall election going. There are so few signatures that are necessary compared to the, the size of the electorate. And then people, of course, remember how Arnold Schwarzenegger, an actor, came and won. But, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was an environmentalist. He was pro-public education. Uh, I remember in, in 2007, he and Charlie Crist were, were, at the, were spearheading this thing on climate change and uh, renewable energy. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was the right type of Republican to win in California. <laughs> Larry Elder obviously was not. I mean, a right-wing talk radio host uh, who's against all those things uh, made it a very easy foil for Gavin Newsom. Uh, having said that, the more that Donald Trump injects himself into politics and continues to decide he needs to weigh in on every single thing and Fox News continues to cover him, well, it'll be way easier for Democrats to run against Donald Trump generically than it was, for example, for them to run against uh, George W. Bush in 2008, you know, who more or less quietly faded away because when he was that unpopular. In Washington, it, it appears Democrats are focused on what they're going to make the case in 2022 that's not just Donald Trump. And we saw this week as they, they tried to churn through this 3.5 or, or very large, many trillions dollar spending bill as it may end up. Uh, but we saw this week three centrist Democrats in committee voted against a provision uh, that would allow the government to negotiate Medicare drug prices. 
Um, this was something that President Biden asked for. This was something that President Trump had even supported. And now, uh, does it look, Alex, to you like it's falling apart? Is this something that's going to make it uh, into a bill? Should a bill uh, get passed? Uh, well, I had coffee yesterday with a Democratic strategist who has worked on House campaigns, and he was not quite literally, but almost literally tearing his hair out over this because this issue of negotiating drug prices is like the, you know, tea on the or ball on the tea, hit it out of the park issue for Democrats. They can run it in every district in the country. They can run it anywhere. It's super popular. And all three of these Democrats who voted against this provision campaigned on, they, they you know, they ran ads saying, I'm going to stick it to pharmaceutical companies and lower drug prices. And then they get to Washington and, uh, you know, turn around and do this. So it's a, it is a huge problem. It speaks to how narrow the House majority is for Democrats and they can't afford to lose, uh, you know, very many votes at all. And uh, there's not a lot of political justification for this. I, you know, not to be too cynical, but it, it seems like these are, these are lawmakers who largely come from states with big pharmaceutical industries, uh, received money from industries. Um, I'm not, you know, ascribing motives here, but one can infer for themselves. And uh, it's, you know, we're, we're in late September, uh, Thanksgiving's around the corner, Christmas is around the corner, and then we're in an election year. So the clock is ticking and there's a lot that Congress needs to do. Uh, and the, this was always going to be threading a needle, but the, the, the needle is getting smaller and smaller by the day. Jim, we see this is the one sort of chance that Democrats have or would seem to have, as Alex put it, before that that window closes and we end up in an election year. Is this progressives and moderates in a in a circular fire, you know, a firing circle? Is this tearing each other apart? Uh, or is this sort of the natural part of lawmaking where people are going to disagree and there's going to need to be some level of negotiation and talks before they get to the end? Well, I think it's actually a combination of both, Ginger. And that is, you know, this is the normal legislative process. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is trying to do in the House. And she's trying to basically appease all of the different aspects of her coalition. You know, the issue that she's running into is that some of these House moderates they don't want to take a vote that if they think the Senate is not going to um, be there for them on the other end. And, you know, uh, if you go all the way back to 2009 and 2010, when House Democrats had to take a very tough vote on cap and trade, and then a lot of them ended up uh, losing their seats when the Senate just allowed that bill to die. Um, you know, they're worried that this pharmaceutical pricing bill won't get, uh, you know, the votes that's needed in the Senate. And they want they want Pelosi and company to just go ahead and cut the deal now with Senate moderates and not play around and pretend that there's some sort of fantasy world where they can the House can do what it wants and then the Senate can just follow suit. So, but but to your original point, it's exceptionally important that House Democrats have something they can take home next year and say, this is what we've done for you. It's going to be really their primary, uh, you know, as Alex said. You know, it's not enough just to run against Donald Trump and the GOP. They have to say, uh, we've delivered. And, and this package that they're working on is their best shot to do that. Chris, let me ask you, the White House, we saw a, four years of a president who could barely get any legislation passed because he couldn't stay on message. Uh, Trump just, you know, had a long list of things he wanted to do, couldn't run the discipline. 
Now we see a White House where they've got the president out giving these written speeches uh, multiple times a week. They pick a message and they drive it. Uh, but is it working? I'm also seeing on my television these pharma ads that scare old people into thinking their, their prescription drugs are getting taken away. Do Democrats, does the White House have a messaging problem? That key group of people who actually put Joe Biden into the White House are Republicans. They're suburban Republicans who say, we're fed up with this guy and we're absolutely not going to vote for him and he needs to be out of office. And so they voted for Joe Biden. And this happened in suburbs all over the country. And it, and it mattered most in, the, in you know, like a handful of swing states. So that is the big problem. People didn't vote for Joe Biden because he was going to reduce prescription drug prices. They didn't vote for him because he's going to um, do something about climate change. A lot of Democrats voted for him for those reasons. But that's not why he became president. So fundamentally... That's where we are, is for, for the voters who picked him because he's not Donald Trump, mission accomplished, that's done. And they're not that interested in these other things because, you know, who cares? So that's where they start out with. Um, as to what they can run on, shoot, they've already got the child tax credit. I mean, this helps an enormous number of people. And I'm surprised they have made a, a bigger deal out of folks who are uh, have young children, you know, children under 17, I believe it is. Uh, getting actual cash money every single month or a much bigger tax credit at the end of the year, that's a big, big deal. And uh, if Democrats can't make hay out of that, I'm not sure they deserve to be <laughs> the majority party anymore. Will they get a big bill done? Probably not. I mean, you need 60 votes in the Senate uh, or you need actually for a reconciliation bill. You still need 50. Are we getting a, a mansion and cinema on board for a, a a three and a half trillion dollar package? Probably not. So it'll be something, something less. Will pharmacy be, uh, you know, the the drug care, uh, the med, uh, Medicare drug prices be on that? Maybe. You know, that's a long way away still. And all kinds of things happen in conference that you can't get done on the floor. So we'll see. Let me ask you this question about this story that popped up with Nicki Minaj. And I think it's it's been one of those um, stories that Twitter and, and social media have loved where she put some doubt on COVID vaccines. Um, and, and as Jim joked a moment ago, it became a bit of an international uh, crisis with the governments of Trinidad and Tobago and then the White House weighing in. Um, and I, I love Jim. I mean, it, when we look at how the White House is handling messaging on a spending bill and we look at how the White House is handling messaging on a COVID, on COVID. Um, they, they sort of jumped in at the pop culture moment. Um, are they really being as aggressive as they could uh, to convince people to pay attention to these things? I mean, they, they will jump in on COVID. They'll talk about Nicki Minaj's brother's cousin's problems that probably don't exist with the vaccine. Uh, but do they need to just turn the volume up elsewhere and, and be more creative and engaged to get their, their case out there? I think actually they're probably maybe a little bit grateful for, uh, you know, uh, the Nicki Minaj situation. I'm, and I'm happy to be the go-to person for all Nicki Minaj questions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, Biden and the administration, I mean, they've talked about the importance of getting vaccines over and over and over again to the point where they've been criticized for, quote, scolding uh, the unvaccinated. So, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a, of a welcome left turn for them where they can have something outrageous. But then that's something that gets people's attention in a way that the White House just can't. Um, so, you know, to the fact that is this going to reinforce the vaccine skeptics? Uh, probably not. Is it going to, um, you know, 
uh, allow some some real truthful information to get into the discourse that that uh, might not otherwise uh, get there. Yeah, probably. So, uh, you know, it might end up being a net positive for the White House. Well, now that we've talked about this White House, we would be remiss to keep going without talking about the last White House that seems to never end. Um, We're always still learning new things about them. And this week, uh, a new book uh, we got some excerpts from called Peril uh, by Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. And it's got some uh, details in it about what General Milley the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, did uh, in the final months of the Trump presidency. And the book tells us that um, Milley, uh, before the election, even before Trump had lost, and then again uh, in the spring, had a conversation with Chinese leaders who had become concerned uh, that that Trump might launch an attack on China in order uh, to bolster his political position in the United States. Shrish, I'm curious, you know, when you read that excerpt, or I assume you read the excerpt, when you saw the details of that conversation, um, did this surprise you? Was this something that you thought was out of character for a Trump administration? Or did you feel like um, you were learning sort of what you had expected was going on behind the scenes at the time? Right. Well, there's an important distinction to make between Trump administration political appointees who agreed with Donald Trump on a bunch of things, and then kind of you know the um, the leadership of the military and the State Department who absolutely did not agree with him. And what we're seeing here is when General Milley was out there at that uh, episode out in Lafayette Square where they cleared the park with tear gas and everything so that Donald Trump could go and hold a Bible in front of a church, which he never stepped foot into by the way once in four years. Um, that was a real important moment because within a week, both uh, Milley and and Mark Esper, the defense secretary at the time, said it was a mistake to be there. And boy, w- when they said that, the Trump White House, the political people in the White House went ballistic. They were so angry because they felt uh, correctly that they were sending a message to Donald Trump that whatever happens in this election, we're not any part of this thing. So what happened is the election got very close and, and General Milley called China. And then later, when after after January 6th, when he sat down with other leaders at the Pentagon and said, look, we do not do anything rash until we you run it by me. This was a result of four years of basically telling the world, well, you better do what Donald Trump says because he's kind of crazy and we don't we can't predict what he's going to do. And now being in the position where they have to say, yeah, okay, maybe he's crazy, but it's all right. We've got this. We're in charge. We won't let anything bad happen. So no, it was not at all surprising. In fact, I would have been surprised if something like that didn't happen. Alex, let me ask you, we see sort of the response from Republicans um, directed at criticism. We saw President, former President Trump calling uh, accounts of the, the phone call treason. Um, I, I does anything happen? I mean, we, we learn these details. We're not super surprised. It seems to be in line. They're, they're interesting. They're informative. Um, but does any, is there a fallout? Uh, well, there, you know, there, there is going to be some pushback in Congress. Uh, I think it will probably be more smoke than fire because after all the chairman of the joint chiefs reports to the president. And I don't think this president has any interest in getting rid of him and has said he has his full confidence. Uh, but I think this speaks to a really 
interesting conundrum that uh, this is one example of a much larger thing. When we have democracy being threatened uh, in various ways at this moment, the people on the other side of that can rightly be accused of violating norms. I mean, he did violate a norm there by uh, basically, uh, you know, standing up to the civilian leadership, civilian oversight of the military and telling the military don't launch nuclear weapons without my approval when in fact, you know, by law, the president alone has the sole authority to do that. This, this outreach to China, not really, um, you know, kosher, but <laughs> how would history judge it? You know, if you, if you're him, would you rather have to have a small chance of there being some kind of, um, you know, bizarro strike that kills millions of people and leads to some kind of war or, uh, violate some, norm here. So I, I think his conscience is probably clean, but it's uh, when when other people are challenging norms and doing things that are way outside of what is expected, uh, the people trying to defend things, it's very hard to do that and remain within the lines uh, while doing it effectively because you, you, know, you, you have a hand essentially tied behind your back. And um, this is why often illiberal forces in history have had a, an upper hand in, in you know, overtaking governments um, when the, the people that they're fighting against are, are going to play by the rules. We heard the White House asked about this um, episode in probably another example of how the Trump administration will take a long time before the Biden administration uh, keeps puts having to answer questions. So let's let's listen to what uh, Jen Psaki had to say um, about this. I can't speak to the former president's uh, experience with him or the former president's views of him. But the, this president, this current president, uh, who follows the Constitution, who's not fomenting an insurrection, who follows the rule of law, has complete confidence in Chairman Milley and him serving, continuing to serve in his role. Jim, I mean, when you're looking at the Biden administration and they're you know, fresh off of Afghanistan and so much criticism about how that was handled. I mean, this feels like an opportunity where uh, they could have tossed him under the bus and they could have said, you know what, he shouldn't have done that. He also didn't handle Afghanistan that great. He's a holdover, Uh, you know, we're stuck with him. Were you surprised, Jim, to see how quickly uh, the Biden White House came to his defense? Uh, Not necessarily, Ginger. And I I think it it goes back um, to the idea that this White House doesn't need any more uh, distractions or any more crises, and throwing the Joint Chief of Staff under the bus would qualify as a major issue. And of course, you remember, you know, this White House is not about to cave into Republican criticism. Um, and, and Biden is such an institutionalist. I understand the, the risks of, of um, you know, going off book uh, like Milley did. But at the same time, you know, this allows them to say, this allows Saki and the White House to say what they want to say, which is, we believe in the rule of law. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in, um, you know, uh, international uh, norms. And even though this was a violation of that, technically, it was also a way to sort of, you know, say that we're, you know, we're, we're going to come down on the side of stability. I think probably the most unfortunate thing from this entire incident, though, is it, it, it's amazing how sort of... Um, you know, how the Trump world sort of operates in kind of a, a cycle where the outrageousness ends up feed, feeding the conspiracy theory. So, you know, Millie's actions are just going to end up furthering the idea among Trump supporters about the deep state, about the deep state, um, you know, about the forces of government being aligned uh, against Donald Trump. 
And, you know, that leads naturally into, you know, what we're going to be talking about soon about the rally this weekend. Um, but I think that's probably the most unfortunate aspect of all of this is that a lot of people are going to walk, take away from this. Oh, once again, you know, the military can't be trusted. The institutions of government can't be trusted. And that's how you end up with uh, stuff like January 6th, sort of like what Alex said. Hey, can I just jump in here? On one? This is not the first time that uh, the military um, and, and others outside of the, the, the actual chain of command for, for launching nuclear weapons has jumped in. I mean, in 1974, uh, James Schlesinger, SecDef at the time, and Al Haig, chief of staff, said nothing happens unless you, you go through us. Well, that was kind of extra constitutional. But when the president of the United States is drunk and wandering around the White House yelling at portraits, maybe you want something extra constitutional to avoid disaster. I, I don't think the founding fathers had in mind the idea that you could destroy the planet with one person getting mad. So uh, there's that. And second, the, the Republican Party had an obligation to nominate somebody who was commander in chief material and a disaster manager in chief. And they failed. They failed. And they knew they failed us. I mean, the leadership of the party knew in 2015 that this guy is a joke. He should never become our nominee. And they let it happen. So there's a more fundamental issue there. And he's the most popular candidate right now. It's like 70% of Republicans say that Joe Biden is not really the president. So we got a bigger problem here than what Milley did. And the problem is that the guy who instigated all this could become the nominee again. Well, before we get to 2024, we will talk about this weekend. And I'll just say, I think on this issue about what Millie did and what the role of the government is, I sat through entire law classes just on what happens if the president asks for an unjust strike. And it's way more complicated than I think a lot of people realize than just the Constitution lets a president launch a war. So um, definitely something that I think constitutional and legal and international law scholars will be debating for some time. But before we get into that debate, let's take a quick break. Today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Their motto is feel the power. And boy, they exercise their power all across this country, over half a million strong under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Uh, the laborers active in the construction field. They're building infrastructure already and ready to build a whole lot more of it. Congress ever gets its act together. Active in the energy field, building solar turbines, uh, solar panels rather, wind turbines, and old-fashioned pipelines if they're still needed anywhere. The laborers also active in the public service sector, particularly with healthcare workers and sanitation workers. Check out their website at liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. And thanks to the members of the Laborers Union for their great work building America and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. 
It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, we are joined today by three great journalists to break down the week in Washington. Jim Oliphant with Reuters, Alex Seitzwald with NBC News, and SV Date with HuffPost. Let's jump right back in. Jim had mentioned a moment ago this rally we're expecting. Um, and it's like, again, you know, as Trish was saying, Trump leads the polls um, to be the Republican nominee, and it looks like he can still pull a crowd at his rallies. Um, But Alex, what do you think? Are we going to see a crowd in Washington? And um, does the size of the crowd that shows up speak at all to the size of Trump's current support? Uh, I kind of doubt that we'll see much of a crowd tomorrow. I mean, maybe I'll eat these words in 24 hours, but... Uh, in the past, when we've had moments like this, it's always been the the rallies that we're not paying attention to that get ugly. It was, you know, Charlottesville, uh, the Unite the Right rally, the, the, the police were not prepared. Uh, no one was really paying attention. Same thing on January 6th. And then, you know, on V2, everyone gets their ducks in a row and they, they roll out the heavy artillery and then nobody shows up. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm expecting will happen tomorrow. Also, you know, I mean, hundreds of the people who participated in January 6th, including a lot of the, the, the leadership, are currently facing indictment or they're in jail or they're, you know, getting ready for trial. So they have other fish to fry uh, at the moment. But um, I do think it matters. And the fact that it's still continuing and the fact that the former president put out a statement yesterday saying the people arrested on January 6th are being unjustly prosecuted uh, I, I, not to editorialize here, but I think it's, it's a safe ground to editorialize on. I, I think it's really troubling. Um, th- these are people who, you know, pretty clearly are accused of uh, very serious crimes with major implications. And it's not just that the former president is saying that, but that he's making it a litmus test for other Republicans to uh, follow. And I, I think in California, there was a great example with Larry Elder. He knew that the 2020 election was fair. He said it in August uh, in the Sacramento Bee editorial board interview. He said Joe Biden won the election fair and square. And then he got raked over the coals by some conservative activists. And within hours, he turned around and said, oh, wait, never mind. Actually, it was full of shenanigans. The 2020 election wasn't legit. And then he stoked all these voter fraud claims about his own election. And I think he is much more representative of the elite classes of the Republican Party, the the candidates, the operatives. I don't think a, a lot of them believe this stuff, but they're saying it because the base demands it. And, the you know, it was it's one thing. It's bad enough for, for Trump to be spreading those lies about 
the 2020 election. But if the, if the January 6th protest now falls into that same category and, and the to be a Republican in good standing in Trump's party, you have to say these are political prisoners who are being unjustly prosecuted and the January 6th attack, riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, was was an okay thing. Uh, that's that's normalizing something that is really dangerous, I think, for democracy. Jim, we see that there's no Republican leaders uh, or anyone of note planning to speak at this rally. Um, but maybe not yet, as Alex has sort of laid out, too, a sign that the GOP um, is ready to criticize even some of them criticized the events of January 6th. Um, how does the Republican Party handle this? What do you do if you're Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy or someone who wants to run for president in the future um, and you see this type of event still happening, these types of groups continuing? I mean, how are they figuring this out? Well, I think largely by staying quiet about it and um, and hoping hoping that it, it goes away. And the problem is with Donald Trump, it's never going to go away. And, uh, you know, going back to what we were talking about next year in 2022, you know, Republicans are in a real bind with that because while the base loves the idea of relitigating the 2020 election, the kinds of voters that Republicans are going to need to win some of these swing districts are not going to want to hear it. They're going to want to hear about the future and not the past. And, uh, and so the, you know, I listened to the uh, debate last night in the Virginia governor debate between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. And Youngkin was asked straight, you know, straight away, you know, if you lose, will you support, will you support McAuliffe as the winner? And um, he said, of course, but with caveats, you know, leaving an election integrity and, uh, and on and on. And that's the answer that a lot of Republicans, Republicans are going to have to give. But the fundamental point is they're going to be asked all next year, do you believe uh, you know, in the process, and that the more that they undermine that belief, and the more that they they tie themselves to the big lie, the more of a political liability I think that is. I'm going to switch topics for one last um, issue that I think is right on the horizon and starting to get more attention, and that's the debt ceiling. Um, I feel like we're in this weird uh, wormhole where we woke up and all of a sudden the debt ceiling is a thing again after it wasn't a thing for the last four years. And now um, Republicans are threatening to block a raising of the debt ceiling. Trish, what is your take on how the White House views this? Do they think this is a real threat? Are they concerned that um, the debt ceiling is not going to get raised? Or is this just a political episode that we'll all go back to forgetting about the debt ceiling in a few months. I think it's the latter. I, I don't think they, they believe that it's a, it's a real threat. I mean, um, when Mitch McConnell says that he's serious and they better do it on their own, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, come on, we're going to, we're going to default on our bond obligations. I mean, the United States of America, I mean, that's ridiculous. And, and, and so I think they feel that when push comes to shove, they will, uh, they will do this. It's the responsible thing to do. If, um, if they don't want to have any more debt, okay, don't spend any more money. And the Republicans have shown that they're not really willing to do that. So I, I think that, that on the priority list, the real priority list, this is pretty low because they don't think that this is a, a, a serious issue. Alex, is this maybe another instance of Democrats assuming that Republicans will do normal things like not allow the U.S. government to default on their bond obligations when the Republican Party keeps telling them that they're willing to do abnormal things in this day and age. 
Uh, well, I I am not that old, but I am old enough to remember way, way, way back into uh, the administration of Barack Obama, if if that name sounds familiar, when the uh, government did shut down and there was a, a huge fight over the debt ceiling and we came extremely close to uh, going over the, the debt ceiling cliff or, or I'm mixing my metaphors here. And I remember the Treasury Department had to do what they called extraordinary measures, basically, you know, looking for pennies under the couch cushions to, to kind of like keep things going and do some accounting tricks uh, while Congress got its act together. So, uh, yes, I would I would not assume this is a bluff. I would not call this bluff. I, I don't think they are bluffing. I I, uh, I think they are willing to do all this. And, and by the way, that was 2013. That's before Donald Trump, before uh, any of this. That was when Ted Cruz was seen as this huge norm-breaking aberrant force in the Republican uh, Party. So I, I, there could be some uh, wish casting, some magical thinking here from the Biden administration where they just don't want to believe that this could possibly happen. Um, but you know, it will be Joe Biden who suffers the most if the debt ceiling, if we do default, because it could be have tremendous consequences for the economy, for international bond markets, for Wall Street. And it's the president who typically uh, absorbs the, the political blow from that. Well, that's one I think we're all going to be watching to see how it resolves. Um, but wanted to get to the last part of our, our round table and that's our favorite stories for the week. When we ask everyone to bring, uh, the favorite thing that they've read or seen, or maybe even written, but, uh, what they they want to recommend. And so we'll start with Jim, Jim, what was your favorite, uh, read of the week? Well, this is going to brand me as the highly superficial person I am, Ginger, but, uh, I'm going to go back all the way to last weekend and the story of the cat. Uh, hanging from the rafters in Miami at the Miami Hurricanes game, uh, being saved uh, by some quick-thinking people with an American flag using that uh, as a as a trampoline, basically. But the great thing about it is is the drama, the the inherent drama that was in the, just those first those, those few seconds where the cat is basically uh, hanging for its life, the entire stadium watching it, and the rare happy ending. Uh, that brings people together uh, in this divided world. So um, uh, I'm going to stick with that answer. Well, that that is um, one that I would not like to see replicated. That was terrifying to watch that cat fall uh, for anyone who hasn't watched the video yet. Uh, Trish, what was your uh, uh, favorite read of the week? I have no favorites. I hate everything. <laughs> no, actually. Let the cat fall. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, the favorite thing for me was actually the, the, the Nicki Minaj thing because I have no idea why that was even a story or how that became important, and I didn't have to write it. So for that reason, that that is the best thing. It was Just wait till she shows up at the White House, and that may be um, different. Um, Alex, what was your favorite read of the week? Uh, so th- this week, the uh, I don't actually know what – anniversary, 30, 40th anniversary, uh, Ig Nobel Prize ceremony happened. You may be familiar with this. It's like an offshoot of the, uh, or an inverse of the Nobel Prize where they award awards, excuse me, for uh, weird scientific discoveries or advancements. And um, one that really caught my eye as a bearded American myself is uh, some research from the University of Utah that suggests beards in humans are an evolutionary advancement to protect men from getting punched in the face, apparently. 
uh, that they think, you know, because we we got rid of the hair on the rest of our body uh, from monkeys. So why do we still have it on our face was the was the question. And the conclusion that they came up with is it's kind of padding uh, so that when our cavemen ancestors got in fights, you would have a little bit of, you know, defense. Uh, So good to know that I'm walking around with a shield on my face in addition to my face mask. Not just there um, for amusement. It serves a real purpose. You learn something new. My favorite story, uh, while it has a Miami Heat connection, uh, it's not quite as upbeat, but Gabrielle Union, the actress who's married to former Heat basketball player Dwayne Wade, wrote a really beautiful essay in Time Magazine this week about her decision to use a surrogate and what that process was like. And she writes about it in really real terms about how hard it was going through um, her own infertility treatment and feeling like she had failed and then uh, coming to terms with it. And in a journey that not many women talk about, and in a week where, or weeks where we've had so much discussion about abortion um, and about women, how they use their bodies, I really thought that her essay was really profound and well-written and really humanized um, a piece of the sort of reproductive issues that are all intertwined together um, and would highly recommend it if you um, might want to bring a little tissue with you, but uh, is the best thing that I've read written this week. And with that, um, I want to thank our panelists for joining us this week for a great discussion. Uh, Jim Oliphant with the National Political Correspondent with Reuters, Alex Seitzwald, Senior Digital Reporter for NBC News, and Trish Date, Senior White House Correspondent for HuffPost. Thank you all for joining us and for being here this week.